Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series this week, Christmas from the Beginning of Time, with a message titled, Born a Child and Yet a King. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7 as we join Dr. Newfeld now. One of our great national pastimes is to complain about the government. You know, I recently read an article that said that the Pythagorean theorem has 24 words, the Lord's Prayer has 66 words, the Archimedes Principle has 67 words, the Ten Commandments have 179 words, but the government regulations on the sale of cabbage, well, it has 26,911 words. Now, that's a commentary on government bloated, overspending, and underperforming on the things that aren't important. No wonder we're all just a bit cynical. Yet, as Christians, we're told to submit to the government. We're told to pray for the government, recognizing that God has set the government in place. But we also know that this can become difficult because sometimes laws are passed that we simply can't obey. And other times, government does things that we just can't agree with, but ethically we must obey. We know that on this side of eternity, government will always be imperfect. Our hope, however, is that one day there will be perfect government when God reigns. Then there will be perfect justice and perfect laws and no burdensome bureaucracy and no government waste and a day when when peace will reign because the Prince of Peace will be our King. You know, I wonder how many people in history have longed for that. You know, I feel this very personally for, as some of you know, My great-grandfather was murdered by anarchists, and my grandfather was tortured to death by communists, and my mother and my father were refugees fleeing from communist Russia only to end up in Nazi Germany. I mean, the stories in my family about how cruel and unjust government can be are, are the stories that I was raised with. You know, that's one of the reasons I am thankful to live in Canada, where my rights and freedoms are protected, although, as we know, It's far from perfect, and we have our own share of unjust laws in this country as well. You know, the more one pays attention to the brokenness and sin, not only in individual people, but in society, in government, the more one wants to pray for our government, and the more one longs for the reign of God. Our Christmas series this year is entitled Christmas from the Beginning of Time, in which we have been tracing the Old Testament line of expectation beginning with Genesis 3.15 and building upon the themes of the hope of a Redeemer, which give meaning to the birth of Christ. You know, today, as we're going to see, the ancient kingdom of David leads us directly to the birth of Jesus. So let me give you a short history of David, Israel's greatest king. David became king of Israel in 1010 BC following the disastrous reign of King Saul. Saul had become a madman, and when you have a king and he's a madman, well, that's bad government. So Saul had fits of jealous rage. He he murdered anyone he suspected, even priests. He was erratic, and he led a disastrous, ill-conceived war against the Philistines, which he lost, and it cost him his life. Seven years after his death, David was established as the sole ruler of all of Israel. He ruled Israel for 40 years. Now, the early years of his rule were both turbulent and yet filled with great victories on the battlefield. 
One of his first acts of battle after having become the sole ruler of the nation was to capture the ancient Jebusite city of Jerusalem and make it the capital of his kingdom. You know, it's a a fascinating story of a military strategy as David's leading commander, Joab, took a small group of men and entered the city along the water shaft and once inside, simply opened up the city gate, allowing David's men to enter and bypass all the fortifications. And with Jerusalem captured, Israel had a capital city. And David's early years were taken up in wars, mainly with the Philistines to the west of him, and eventually he would defeat them. He also did battle to the east of him, defeating the Moabites in the territory now known as Jordan. He defeated the Syrians in the north, and in doing so, he secures his borders and he brings peace. You know, eventually he would establish a real nation with defendable borders and a coherent centralized structure of government. Finally, Israel had a government that worked based on real laws, that is the laws of Moses. And with that, we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm reading the first three verses of that chapter. It reads, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. You know, if there's anything that marked David as king, it's the phrase found in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14. It's that David was a man after God's heart. David was not just a warrior king. He's a man who loved to worship. One half of the Psalms are written by him. He played a musical instrument. He wrote songs. He sang and he worshiped. And what's more, his delight was in the law of the Lord. David had won his major battles, but he had found a time to build himself a beautiful palace, probably at a time when the Israelites were still living in tents. You know, this was still a time when the technology of building was something the more established nations had, but but Israel had little of it. But his palace was a symbol of the fact that the nation was becoming permanent, established, and that great days lay ahead. But in this, David had become deeply embarrassed. He looked out at the tabernacle, the tent in which God was worshipped, and compared that to his palace, and he simply couldn't abide it. Psalm 132 was written many years after this event, but it gets at the issue for David. It says, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids, until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. See, that's what motivated David, whether in his wars or in his government or in his setting up a place of worship. His was a desire to glorify God. Nathan, who's a prophet, but also one of the king's counselors, hears of David's desire, and he can't think of a reason why not to do it. Go for it, he says. But it's later when Nathan hears from God and he hears a surprising answer. The answer is no, you may not do it. The time for a temple is going to come later, but that time is not now. After all, God has not been looking enviously at David's house and and thinking, wow, all I've got is a tent. See, the tent or the tabernacle was such a fitting symbol of God's presence among the Israelites. They've been wanderers living in tents, and God has wandered with them. The tent or the tabernacle showed that. But then God tells David, I've never asked you to build me a temple. But then comes something that, well, it must have surprised David. 
I'm reading verses 7 to 9, which are spoken by the prophet Nathan, who is speaking for God. It says, and I quote, In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. So let me now fast forward to verse 11. God is still speaking through the mouth of the prophet. And it says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. See, that's fascinating. The chapter begins with David telling God that he plans to build God a house. And God then responds by telling David he's gotten it all backwards. God is going to build David a house. You know, we should stop here and remember a basic truth. What God does for us is always more important than what we do for God. So you ask yourself a couple of questions. Which statement is more profound? I love God or God loves me? You know, don't get me wrong. Telling God that we love him and want to serve him and that we would gladly for his name's sake forsake everything. I mean, that's good and indicates the prompting of the spirit of God in our hearts, that we would abandon everything for the cause of Christ. But is it not more profound to say, God loves me? And God has built for me something that's eternal because that's where the gospel lies. I mean, after all, anything that I do for God is not something that God needs. Oh, I know I need it. See, I need to sacrifice my desires in serving the Lord so that I might learn the value of God in everything. But this is the key. What God does for me is the story of the riches of his grace. See, that's what David was to learn, and that will lead us directly to the Christmas account. Christmas is about God working on our behalf. It is about God building for us something that is truly eternal. Christmas is more than family traditions, gifts, and festive music. Christmas is a promise kept. God promised to send a Savior, and Christmas is the fulfillment of that pledge. For this reason, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to the teaching of God's Word, and your dependable support enables the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada to fulfill that mission. As 2022 draws to a close, many listeners consider a special gift as an expression of their support for faithful, trustworthy Bible teaching. This year, our goal is to raise $519,000 by December 31st. This will allow Back to the Bible Canada to enter 2023 prepared to respond to the increasing need and opportunity to engage the world around us with solid Bible teaching you can trust. To give a gift to the year-end goal, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When we left off, we had God telling David that he would not be building him a house. Instead, the matter was reversed. God would build David a house. So let's continue to read. I'm reading 1 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. 
When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, skipping ahead once more, we come to verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, so for the sake of clarity, let's take note of everything that God has promised David. So first, David's name would be among the greatest names of the earth. That's clearly stated in verse 10. That must have something to do with the nature of his kingdom or his ability to govern. Second, God promises that Israel would become secure. That is promised in verse 12, his kingdom would end in peace. Third, God promises him that his kingdom would endure forever. His would not only be an enduring kingdom, it would be an enduring kingdom over the entire earth. Think about some of the great kingdoms of this world. There was the Egyptian, then the Hittites, then the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, on and on they go. Great empires that seemed unstoppable, that would never end, now simply are a matter of ancient historical study and the work of archaeologists. You see, in our day, we are reminded that the British Empire is no more and that the American century seems to be closing. Nothing remains. All governments and kingdoms fall. None of them will endure. Except, says God, David's kingdom would endure forever. Now, initially, God promises David that his son would establish his kingdom, and that was fulfilled by Solomon, who is David's immediate son. But everything about this throne goes beyond Solomon. Something greater than Solomon would surely come. So I'm assuming that everything recorded in 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 17, occurred while David is in his palace. And with this, David gets up, and he walks out the door of his palace, and he walks into the tabernacle, and he sits down before God. Look at verses 18 to 19. We read, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Now that last line in verse 19 has been translated in a number of ways. Let me illustrate that. Remember, the ESV says, and this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God, meaning that all humanity has something to learn from what has just happened to David. Interestingly enough, the NIV translates that verse very differently. It says, Is this your usual way of dealing with man, O sovereign Lord? See, that's different because in the NIV, David is simply saying, Do you treat everyone this way? Other translations, for instance, the NASB says, And this is the custom of man, O Lord God. Now, that's a difficult one, and we might ask what that means. Another translation, the Holman Bible says, and this is a revelation for mankind, O Lord God. In other words, from the Holman translation, what God told David is something that the entire earth should know about. Listen up, people of the earth. Wow, which translation is right? Now, in the Hebrew, it simply reads, this is Torah for Adam, or this is law for humanity. Now, that word Torah can be translated as custom, instruction, law, even charter on which all laws are based. So here's what I think that David said. He's sitting before God and he's musing on what God has told him about his kingdom. 
and he's piecing together the kingdom that he has. He no doubt thought about God's revelation about Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, or about the promise to Abraham that God would give Israel this land and would bless him. But God also had told Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. See, if the Hebrew people were the conduit of blessing for the world, and if David's kingdom was the enduring kingdom that would govern Israel forever, then, well, it must follow that David's kingdom would be international, worldwide. The implications are huge. If it ruled over all, it would crush the head of the serpent. I mean, David, as he's reflecting on what God has said, suddenly in the temple shouts out what he must have suddenly understood. This is your charter for the human race. All of your purposes in creation are being fulfilled in my family, and I'm overwhelmed. In other words, he suddenly got it. This was the way that God was going to govern. This is the law for the entire earth. Now, there are a number of Psalms, some written by David and others written by others, that are directed at this one moment in history. So, for instance, Psalm 89 is a psalm that was written by a man named Ethan the Ezraite, and it's written entirely to celebrate 2 Samuel 7 and what God has promised David. Psalm 89 verses 3 and 4 says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Now, when you think about it, that not only means that David's throne will last forever, It means that his offspring or his seed or the rightful heir of his throne will also be established forever. David's son, his heir, would never die, would live forever. And in Psalm 2, again celebrating that event, it records what was promised of him. So I'm reading Psalm 2, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. In other words, David told God that he understood that his plan to rule the earth, this, this earth that was corrupted by the fall and by sin, this, this ruined earth would one day be restored with perfect government, and that perfect government would be fulfilled on his throne. This is the kingdom that would fill the earth. Now, if you don't get how this relates to Christmas yet, then, then hear the very first words of the New Testament. It reads, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So you can't really understand what Jesus Christ means until you know that Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is simply the Greek translation for the Hebrew term Messiah. And the word Messiah simply means the anointed one. Anointing was the process of pouring oil over the head of the next king of Israel in order to crown him as king. In other words, to call Jesus, Jesus Christ, is to say he's the one who rightfully inherits David's throne, the kingdom that never ends. He is, by rights, the rightful ruler of a throne that will rule the entire earth forever. And that's why Matthew, who's the first author of the New Testament and who tells us of Joseph and Mary's betrothal and Mary's virgin conception, which is the fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah, before Matthew can get to that, he must introduce a prior thought. The prior thought is this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. See, those are the first lines of the New Testament. Nothing makes sense of Christmas until you understand that basic point. 
This is the genealogy of the one whose birth marks the charter of the human race, the one destined to sit on David's ancient throne, whose kingdom will never end, whose kingdom crushes Satan's head, and before whom all the kings of the earth must bow, either in willing submission or in terror. That, says the beginning of our New Testament, is what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus. And that's why so many Bible teachers have pointed out that in the ancient church, no Christian could say what the Roman government demanded that they would say. The Roman government demanded that early Christians say, Caesar is Lord. And no, no, said believers, Jesus Christ alone is Lord. Of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. He alone is the one destined to rule all things. You see, Herod knew that, and that's why he sent his troops into Bethlehem to kill the baby. See, this is the child whose origins are from ancient times, whose kingdom will never end. So, as we consider the implications of that today, please hear me. London, Moscow, Washington, Beijing. See, none of these places are the seat of world power. The seat of world power was found in a manger outside of Bethlehem, 2,000 years ago. And that's what we celebrate this time of the year. The great king has arrived and his kingdom will never end. Now that he's come, the history of the earth and what is to come is an unstoppable history. Christ has come. John, thanks for your message today. I want to talk about a tension that we have in our message today, though, the one between obeying God and obeying the government. There is a tension here when we're called to do really both. Yeah, we really are. And I've always loved the account of uh, Daniel and, uh, and the relationship that he has with Babylon. So he actually becomes a leader in Babylon. And at the same time, uh, he continues to be faithful to his God so that when Babylon wants something of him that contradicts his faith in the Lord is God. He simply cannot comply. And all believers, I think, want to bless the country in which we live in every way that we can. We want to be known as those who are loyal to our country and seek the welfare and the benefit of the country in which we live. I think that's a, a, a mandate that the Scripture actually gives us. But in the end of the day, we recognize that all the kingdoms of this world are passing away. So is ours. And it will soon be no more. And the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ will last forever. So when it comes to our loyalty, it remains with Christ. He is above all things. And so uh, at Christmas time, we celebrate that Jesus indeed is King of kings and Lord of lords and that he has captured our hearts and demands of us and receives from us what no king, potentate, prime minister, president, or anyone else can possibly demand of us. I think that's the tension. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. With 2022 coming to a close, you may be making plans for 2023, vacations, birthdays, other events, but what about your time spent with God and His Word? It can be challenging to balance our personal devotions with the hustle and bustle of everyday life. But Back to the Bible Canada has a great solution. The 2023 scripture calendar, Freedom in Christ, is designed with stunning images, Bible verses for reflection, encouraging quotes from Dr. John Newfeld, and most important, a daily Bible reading plan to help you read through the Bible in one year. 
Perhaps that's your commitment for 2023. And the Freedom in Christ calendar is available to you for free. Now there's a limited number left, so call us and ask for your copy today. Call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.